Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. I'm sure you know that this belief in walking, rural walking anyway, as virtuous persists. Well, welcome to Wanderlust, a history of walking. That's my rather rhetorical way of starting part two of chapter eight, the chapter that's called A Thousand Miles of Conventional Sentiment. And today I'm going to walk more briskly than before. The weather is superbly dry, uh, blue and white sky. I want to uh, make uh, the walk a bit smart. So here we go with Rebecca Solnit. The, the, last, the last sentence of part one was, writing and walking were reduced to fit each other, at least in this major tradition in the English-speaking world. So part two, called The Simple. This belief in walking, rural walking anyway, as virtuous persists, Examples are everywhere. Recently I found one particularly annoying essay in a Buddhist magazine asserting that all the world's problems would be solved if only the world's leaders would walk. Quote, perhaps walking can be the way to peace in the world. Let world leaders walk to the conference site instead of riding in a power-contagious l- limousine. Take away the conference tables, whatever their size and shape, and have a meeting of minds along the shores of Lake Geneva. End quote. Another example by a world leader suggests how dubious this idea is. Ronald Reagan wanted to start his memoirs with the most important moment of his presidency, writes the editor Michael Corda, who tried to make them work as a book. The moment was during his first meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev near Geneva. Geneva is Rousseau's birthplace and it was Rousseauian scene. It was a Rousseauian scene that Reagan described. Quote, Reagan had realized that the summit meeting was going nowhere. The two leaders were surrounded by advisors and specialists as they discussed disarmament and were unable to make any human contact. So Reagan had tapped Gorbachev on the shoulder and invited him to go for a walk. The two went outside and Reagan took Gorbachev down to the shore of Lake Geneva. Reagan went on to say that during, quote, a long heartfelt discussion on that occasion, they agreed towards mutual uh, inspection and verification as well as the first steps towards nuclear disarmament. Corda objected to an aid that the anecdote as Reagan had told it, though deeply moving, was problematic. Gorbachev and Reagan didn't speak each other's language. In any such walk, if any such walk took place, a retinue of translators and security people must have gone with them to make the event more resemble a state procession than a friendly ramble. To propose that the world's problems would be solved by two old men walking by a Swiss lakeside 
in Rousseau's hometown, what's more, was to propose that, is, that the simple, the good and the natural are all aligned, and that these world leaders who held the power to destroy the earth were themselves simple men. And to suggest that they were simple is to imply that they were good and thus that their regimes were just and their achievements honourable, a, 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 a series of dominoes lined up behind the first romantic assumption. The aesthetic of the simple virtues had continued to triumph over the aesthetic of the royal procession with its signs of complexity, sophistication, its many people signifying society. Jimmy Carter actually walked down Pennsylvania Avenue for his inauguration as president, but Reagan brought a new level of pomp and ceremony to the White House and came as close as American presidents have ever to being a sun king. He did so by telling us simple stories about our lost innocence, our corruption by education and the arts, our ability to fall back on log cabin virtues and thereby to dispense with the complex interdependencies of society, economic and otherwise. Portraying himself as a Rousseauian walker was one of those stories. The history of rural walking is full of people who wish to portray themselves as wholesome, natural, a brother to all and nature, and who in that wish often reveal themselves to be powerful and complicated, though other walkers are true radicals out to undermine the laws and authorities that stifle others as well as themselves. Well, that's the end of the simple Superb story about Reagan, isn't it? Absolutely delightful. <laughs> Especially that anyone would believe it, that Reagan and Gorbachev could go off and talk to each other. I would rather have assumed that Gorbachev's English was infinitely better than Reagan's Russian. However, let's carry on to part three, which is the far. Just as the walking essay seems to have been the dominant form of writing about walking in the 19th century, so the lengthy tale of the very long walk is for the 20th century. Perhaps the 21st will bring us something altogether new. In the 18th century, travel literature was commonplace, but the long-distance walkers left little written record of their feats. Wordsworth walked King tour across the Alps, as described in the prelude, was not published until 1850, and the prelude is not exactly travel writing. Thoreau wrote accounts of walks in which his own experience is charted with the same scientific acuity as is the natural world around him, but these are more nature essays than walking literature. The first significant account of a long-distance walk for the sake of walking I know is John Muir's thousand-mile walk to the Gulf. Ah, oh, great! We've come to John Muir, about whom I don't know enough. A really important person who, among other things, and he did much greater things than this, I'm sure, founded the Sierra Club. And if I remember rightly, 1896, two years 
before the National Trust was founded in the UK. But I say that with very little confidence because I can't remember. Right, back here. The first significant account of a long-distance walk for the sake of walking, I know, is John Muir's thousand-mile walk to the Gulf, describing a journey from Indianapolis to the Florida Keys in 1867, published after his death in 1914. The South he walked through was an open wound still festering from the Civil War, and Civil War historians must be frustrated by Muir's neglect of social observation for the sake of botanising, though it is still the most populated of his many books. Populated? Still the most populated of his many books? Do they mean popularised? Anyway, how do I know? I expect she meant something. The wilderness writings makes him a kind of John the Baptist come back from a suddenly appealing wilderness to preach its wonders to the rest of us. Wilderness because its indigenous inhabitants have been forcefully removed and decimated before Muir arrived. But that's another story. For Muir is the United States evangelist of nature adapting the language of religion to describe the plants, mountains, light and processes that he so loved. As close an observer as Thoreau, he is far more apt to read religion into what he sees. He was also one of the great mountaineers of the 19th century. Now, I did not know that at all. Achieving in his woolens and hobnail boots feats that most, with modern gear, would be hard-pressed to follow. Lacking Wordsworth's poetic gifts? Actually, I'm inclined to say, did he really lack Wordsworth's poetic gifts? Or, and that would only be proven by him having tried to write poetry and have come up with something that clearly wasn't in Wordsworth's league. Hang on, we got somebody coming. Here, Louis. We have the arrival of a woman with a dog. <clears throat> Uh-uh. 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 Putting the iPhone on the grass and picking it up again. We walk on. Now this is a bulldog, I think. Good morning. morning. Hello. Hello. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. She didn't consider her dog to be that friendly. A lot of parents speak for their children, but perhaps I'm unfair. She, we must assume she knew her dog much, much better than my dog was capable of judging. Okay, we're ready re-hooking the lead around my waist. You're ready to go on John Muir. Anyway, I was muttering about John Muir's poetic ability and probably saying something that was preposterous to say that if we couldn't be sure about whether he could write as well as Wordsworth. 
Right. Let us see. Let us see now where we are. Okay, we know he was one of the great mountaineers. Okay, lacking Wordsworth's poetic gifts and Thoreau's radical critique, Muir nevertheless walked as they only imagined walking. For weeks alone in the wilderness, coming to know a whole mountain range as a friend and turning his passion for a place into political engagement. But that came decades after his walk in the South. A thousand-mile walk is episodic, as are most such walking books. In such travel literature, there is no overarching plot, except for the obvious one of getting from point A to point B, and for the more introspective, the self-transformation along the way. Yes, I suppose, is this recording a travel book in itself, as opposed to Rebecca Solnit? Is my experience as recorded here worthy of being called my travel? Hmm. Well, it's got so much Rebecca Solnit in it, and it's so dependent on Rebecca Solnit for its, uh, what would I say, its um, sounding board. And that's even to reduce her contribution. Um, that is hard for me to see it. But I must say, it's the first time I've thought of it as my travel book. Uh, He was also one of the great mountaineers. Yes, it's episodic, except for the obvious one of getting from point A to point B, and for the more introspective, the self-transformation along the way. In a sense, these books on walks, for their own sake, are the literature of paradise, the story of what can happen when nothing profound is wrong. And so the protagonist, healthy, solvent, uncommitted, can set out seeking minor adventure. In paradise, the only things of interest are our own thoughts, the character of our companions, and the incidents and appearance of the surroundings. Alas, many of these long-distance writers are not fascinating thinkers, and it's a dubious premise that someone who, who would be dull to walk around the corner with must be fascinating for a six-month trek. <laughs> so true. To hear about walking from people whose only claim to our attention is to have walked far is like getting one's advice on food from people whose only credentials have come from winning pie-eating contests. <laughs> uh, that is, for me, one of the best sentences I have come across in this book. Oh, I paraphrased to hear about, to, to revel in long, in, in writing about long distance, uh, uh, revel in writing from people whose only claim to fame is long distance walking, is like, oh dear, paying attention to people on the question of food whose only claim to fame is that they have won a pie-eating competition. Oh my goodness. Quantity is not everything. I love the way she puts a really short sentence in. 
many writers are stuck in, I would call it, average-length sentences or else long-length sentences and never mix them up or seldom mix them up with short sentences. But Muir has far more to offer than quantity. An acute and often ecstatic observer of the natural world around him, he says nothing at all about why he is walking in a thousand-mile walk to the Gulf, though it seems clear enough that it is because he is a hardy, poor and possessed of botanical passions best fulfilled on foot. But though he is one of history's great walkers, walking itself is seldom his subject. There is no well-defined border between the literature of walking and nature writing. But nature writers tend to make the walking implicit at best, a means for the encounters with nature which they describe, but seldom a subject. Body and soul seem to disappear into the surrounding environment, but Muir's body reappears when his parad... Ah, here's a word I don't know. Paradisiacal. Oh, yeah, paradisiacal from paradise. Paradisiacal luck runs out as he starves, waiting for money to arrive and later becomes mortally ill. Thoreau wrote, wrote accounts of walks in which his own experience is charted with the same scientific accuracy as the natural world around him. But these are more nature essays than walking literature. Seventeen years after Muir, Another young man in his 20s set out to walk more than a thousand miles from Cincinnati to Los Angeles. Charles F. Lummis says at the onset of his Tramp Across a Continent. What a great title. But why tramp? Are there not railroads and pullmans enough that you must walk? That is what a great many of my friends said when they learned of my determination to travel from Ohio to California on foot. And very likely it is the question that will first come to your mind in reading of the longest walk for pure pleasure that is on record, as well as life in the pathetic meaning of the poor health seeker. For I was perfectly well and a trained athlete, but life in the truer, broader, sweeter sense, the the exhilarant joy of living outside the sorry fences of society, living with a perfect body and a walking, awakened, sorry, and with awakened mind, I am an American, and felt ashamed to know so little of my country as I did, and as most Americans do. End quote. 79 pages later, he says of a brief companion, He is the only live, real walker I met on the whole long journey. And there was a keen interest in reeling off the frosty miles with such a companion. Lummis is vain. There are anecdotes where he outshoots and outtuffs the vein of twain, often fall flat. Sorry, where he outshoots and outtuffs westerners, rattlesnakes and snowstorms, and his solemn attempt at jokes in the vein of Twain often fall flat, but he redeems himself by his great and for the time unusual affection for the people and land of the southwest and occasional anecdotes at his own expense.
It is a remarkable story of toughness and navigatory ability and adaptability. Long-distance walking in North America never had the gentility of the walking tour. In England, you can walk from pub to pub or inn to inn, or nowadays hostel to hostel. In America, a long-distance walk is usually a plunge into the wilderness, or at least un-English scale and uninviting spaces such as highways and hostile towns. There seem to be three motives for these long-distance trips. To comprehend a place's natural or social makeup, to comprehend oneself, and to set a record. And more are a combination of the three. An extremely long walk is often taken up as a sort of pilgrimage, a proof of some kind of faith or will, as well as a means of spiritual and practical discovery. Two, as a travel, as travel became more common. Travel writers often sought out more extreme experience and remote places. Oh, I think of people walking across the North and South Pole. We'll come to that, I'm sure. One of the implicit premises of the latter kind of writing is that the journey, rather than the traveller, must be exceptional to be worth reading about. Though Virginia Woolf wrote a brilliant essay about going out into a London evening to buy a pencil And James Joyce managed to write the greatest novel of the 20th century about a pudgy ad salesman trudging Dublin streets. Ah, good old Joyce. Good old Stephen Dedalus. Good old Leopold Bloom. Great stuff. For writers, the long-distance walk is an easy way to find a narrative continuity. If a path is like a story, as I was proposing a few chapters ago, then a continuous walk must be a coherent story, and a very long walk makes a full-length book. Or so goes the logic of these recent books, and to a certain extent it is true. A walker does not skip over much, see things close, sees things close up, and makes herself vulnerable and accessible to local people and places. On the other hand, a walker may be so consumed by athletic endeavour as to be unable to participate in his surroundings, particularly when driven by a schedule or competition. Some of them are happy with these limits, as in Colin Fletcher, one of those inevitable Englishmen whose first long walk is a journey up the eastern side of California in 1958. The resultant book, entitled the Thousand Miles Summer, is a sort of trail mix made up of bite-sized epiphanies, moral lessons, blisters, social encounters, and recounted practical details. He took other walks later, and like Graham wrote a guidebook, The Complete Walker, still used by backpackers. Another Englishman, John Hillaby, never heard of him, walked the length of Britain a thousand miles in 1968 and wrote a bestseller about it, as well as several other books about other walks. By the time Peter Jenkins set out to walk more than 3,000 miles across the United States in 1973, with National Geographic sponsorship, the cross-country expedition had become a kind of rite of passage of American manhood, though by that time the means were far more vehicular. Crossing the continent seemed to embrace or encompass it, at least symbolically, 
The root wrapped around it like a ribbon round a package. The movie Easy Rider, which had recently been released, seemed to draw some of its sensibility from Jack Kerouac's road stories, which themselves often sprawled more like travel books than novels. Kerouac's Dharma Bums recounts how the poet and ecologist Gary Snyder got Kerouac out of the car and into the mountains. I didn't know that. I wonder how Kerouac got on in the mountains. Jenkins set out to have social encounters. The America he was looking for was, unlike Muir's, made up of people rather than places. Like Wordsworth, in his incessant encounters with characters eager to tell their tale, he takes the time to listen to everyone he meets and tells about them in his naively earnest walk across America and walk across America too. In part a reaction against the anti-Americanism of the young radicals of the time, Jenkins' journey brings him into close contact and often friendship with the white southerners so reviled by northern civil rights activists. In the course of his travels, he stays with an Appalachian living off the land, lives with a poor black family for several weeks, and in Louisiana falls in love with a southern Baptist seminarian, undergoes a religious conversion, marries the woman, and after several months resumes his walk with her, arriving on the Oregon coast a far different person from the one who set out. This is truly a journey as life for Jenkins goes as slowly as experience demands. The literature of the long-distance walk is a sort of downhill slope. Towards the bottom come books by people who are athletic walkers, but not necessarily writers. For the necessary combination of silver tongue and iron thighs seems to be a rare one. Silver tongues and iron thighs. Oh, I must put that in a poem sometime. And I must find a way. Well, I suppose there must be a way of crediting Rebecca Solnit. Silver tongues and iron thighs. It actually also could fit in fairly well in a song, I reckon. Maybe in the... uh, Maybe a Southern Baptist pastiche, or a pastiche of Southern Baptist singing. Who knows? Anyway, let's carry on. For the necessary combination of silver tongue and iron thighs seems to be a rare one. The most impressive of the contemporary long-distance walkers I have read, there are many now, is Robin Davidson, who didn't exactly set out to write about walking at all, but did so brilliantly in the course of her tracks. A book recounting 1,700-mile trek across the Australian outback to the sea with three camels sponsored like Jenkins's Odyssey by the National Geographic Society. Midway on her journey she explains its effect on her mind quote but strange things do happen when you trudge 20 miles a day day after day month after month things you only become totally conscious of in retrospect. For one thing I had remembered in Minute and technical or detail everything that had ever happened in my past and all the people who belonged there. 
I had remembered every word of conversation I had had or overheard way, way back in my childhood, and in this way I had been able to review these events with a kind of emotional detachment, as if they had happened to someone else, somebody else. I was re-discovering and getting to know people who were long since dead and forgotten, and I was happy. There is simply no other word for it. End quote. Wow. She, Robin, R-O-B-Y-N. She brings us back to the territory of the philosophers and the walking essayists, to the relationship between walking and the mind that she does it from a kind of extreme experience few have had. Hang on, there's a man running towards us. Where is the dog? Good luck. Uh Uh-oh, Louis, come here. Good dog. He ran from in front of the man past him. Good dog. It's a good dog. She brings us back to the territory of the philosophers and the walking essayists to the relationship between walking and the mind that she does it from a kind of extreme experience if you have had. The 1970s seemed to have been a golden age of long-distance walks. Jenkins, Davidson and Alan Booth all set out in the mid-1970s. Booth's delightful roads to Sata, a 2,000-mile walk through Japan, is a milestone in how far the literature of walking had come. Wow, a walk through Japan. God, I'm going to have some thoughts and some attraction to reading one of these, or at least some of, maybe some of each of them. An Englishman who had lived in Japan for seven years and and come to know the language and culture well, he is unfailingly humorous and modest, a great evoker of place and recounter of comic conversations, respectful but not reverent about the culture. He describes his trip, dirty socks, hot springs, sake and more sake, comic and tragic figures, sultry weather, leechers of both sex with elan. He comments dryly, in properly developed countries, The inhabitants regard walkers with grave suspicion and have taught their dogs to do the same. (laughs) End quote. But enjoys himself all the same. Yet, like most of these travel books, his is not really a book about walking. That is to say, it is not about the acts, but about the encounters, just as a thousand-mile walk to the Gulf is really about botany and natural epiphanies, and on the road and easy rider are only implicitly about the internal combustion engine and its implications. Oh, I love that notion. The internal combustion engine. <laughs> Walking is only a means to maximise those encounters and perhaps test body and soul. My goodness, if I were to go on even a half-long-distance walk, let's even say ten-mile walk, and record audio in the same way as some of these writers might 
retrospectively or after the experience, post, uh, after, post the experience, right up there, their experience. Would Rebecca Solnet regard mine as a, a history of walking, a history of a walking experience, or something else? I have no idea. It would certainly be worth finding out. And you know it would be ever so easy to do. Because in this day and age it's possible to record audio. Even as I'm doing now. And then send it to a transcription company. Who will do a terrifically good job on transcribing it. And the cost is not exorbitant and the time saved is phenomenal. And the anxiety about what words to use to describe things kind of backwardly isn't there at all. I did it once, it reminds me, not of a walking, uh, of a walk, but of a journey in Northern Ireland in 1995, where over three days, maybe three and a half days, I recorded a whole series of audio, a lot, most of it contemporaneous rather than reflective, while travelling, and I recorded them on a, a little Olympus dictaphone. Those little tiny tapes are in the drawer in my office. And I then spent the winter of 95, 96 typing them up with every single um and ah and included. I spent uh, hundreds of hours rewinding the tape, playing it forward in about almost no more than about 10, 15 seconds and then stopping and doing my best to type it up. And then I'm sure I did something, but I can't remember doing it, which was playing it back and double-checking that I'd got it right. It was almost my most... Uh, um, my most obsessive uh, work ever. I had forgotten it in the context of a journey, but it wasn't a walk. There was some walking, and on it there was some particularly memorable walk up Sleeved Donard, close to Newcastle in County Down. And that is, there's another story there for another chapter of my life. So here we go. Ah. Walking is only a means to maximise those encounters and perhaps test body and soul. The test is central to Fifiona Campbell's, that's a Welsh name, Fifiona, F-F-Y-O-N-A, and I probably didn't pronounce it right, Campbell's prolific walks, as recounted in her book, The Whole Story, A Walk Around the World. Wow. The daughter of a harsh military man, she seems to be on a quest to prove herself to him, and to herself.
with her walking and obsessive activity, not unlike her sister's anorexia, which crops up in her book. In 1983, at the age of 16, Campbell successfully walked the length of Britain, a thousand miles, sponsored by the London's Evening Standard, that's a newspaper, and seeking to raise money for a hospital. She then set out to walk around the world, not literally, for the continuous line that links up many walkers' narratives had nothing to do with her. Quote, the Guinness Book of Records defines a walk around the world as beginning and finishing in the same place, crossing four continents and covering a total of at least 16,000 miles, says the preface of her book. She sets off across the United States two years later, Australia five years later, and the length of Africa eight years later, finishing up 11 years after the English walk with a trek northwards from Spain to the English Channel. It is as discontinuous as could be. She flies back to Africa and the States to complete segments she left out earlier, and only a kind of accounting holds it all together as a single act. Perhaps it is a mistake to include Campbell in the literature of walking, even though she has produced books, for she is certainly part of the culture of walking. But she is certainly part of the culture of walking. There is another ancestry for her in the pedestrian athletics, athletes of the late 18th century and early 19th century, who seemed indifferent whether they went their thousand miles around a track or down a road, and who were the subjects of heavy betting. After all, almost no landscape appears in her narratives of several continents, we cannot in it trace an inheritance from Wordsworth. Yet the notion that walking is somehow redemptive and walking further is more so seems to have taken on a fearful life of its own. And surely this is something of a Victorian heritage. And those Victorians were themselves heirs of Wordsworth. Such is the winding road down which history comes now with one set of desires in view, now with another. Like Davidson, Campbell seems driven, but Davidson represents a more intellectual, insightful version of the wounded self seeking redemption through an ordeal and comes equipped with vastly more literary and landscape sensibilities. The fierce attention... I'm going to read Davidson... The fierce alienation is much the same. The sense of a young woman clinging to her stubbornness and her arduous goal, because that's all she has. Jenkins is softer, less locked up. Maybe because it's easier for a man. Maybe because he's more openly a seeker. He knows what kind of pilgrimage he is on. To some extent, Campbell resembles the walkathon walkers, in that she is often walking to raise money for a cause, or more often looking for a cause to represent so that she can also raise money for her expeditions, which with support staff, publicity and so forth, were often expensive.
circular walk. Hello. What a day, eh? Pardon? You get better, I believe. You're joking. Yes. Is it going to be like this all week? Yeah, warmer in the middle of the week. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, isn't it? That is wonderful because you could hardly beat this. Oh, no. There's a just lovely chill in well, the air. I just put on this one because it's probably a I'm thinking, well, I'll take this one off. Yeah, yeah. And I'll uh, wear that uh, warmer jacket. And then I thought I'd do that. In fact, I could have, I think, almost gone walking in it. Have you dogs with you? Oh yeah, yeah. What kind? Are they happy with the? Oh, they don't. They don't mind at all. Oh, that'd be lovely to see. Oh, oh lovely. Oh, lovely. Is that? Um, I'm not much good on, but that's a poodle, isn't it? No, Bichon. Oh, Bichon. God, that just shows my ignorance. Yeah, yeah. Of course, a Bichon. Yes. Oh yeah. And for the other one? That's a, a chocolate lab, purebred. Chocolate lab. Mm. I've never heard the phrase. Haven't you? No, you I haven't. Have, I... You have uh, three kinds. You have a beige, a black, and a, and a, and a, and a yeah, chocolate. chocolate. Yeah. Is the chocolate the least um, common? Yeah. 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 And they're the, yeah. they're the, be the most vicious. No, he's not vicious, like, but uh, if you have a guard dog, nobody oh. would come near our house and they see him looking over the gate. Even the guys, guys that know dogs. It's just that he, he looks the part. Alfie. His name is Alfie. Alfie and a hurry. Oh, he's getting back in now. No, every time I open that, he's in from back Oi. I better. Now, Louis, you better not get in there. <laughs> all right, look. Well, lovely to meet you. Yeah, and you too. Okay, all the best. Cheers. Well, it's easily my favourite anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I used to go down to Ballymacold as well, but it gets muckier. Where's Ballymacold? Down in East Park, down that area. Or down uh, Lower Ahada. Ah, yes. I've never walked there. Yeah, yeah. I have walked, you know that wood that's just out of the centre of Middleton? Yeah. Uh, you go out through a kind of, through suburbs of Middleton. Yeah. And you come to a long lane. Right. And you walk up along and there's ruins of ruins in there and it's as you walk around it you see the river. Yeah, oh you haven't been up there either. Uh, you'd find it on Google Maps, you oh, know? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Alright, look, I'll let you go and I'll take him away. Come on, Louis. Come on. Okay, all the best. Hey. Here Louis. Here Louis. In you get. Come on. Good dog. Good dog. I must see now if this section of the book finishes on the next page. It feels like it might. No, there's too much more to read. So I'm going to leave it. The fierce alienation is much the same. The sense of a young landscape. The sense of a young woman clinging to her stubbornness and her arduous goal, because that's all she has. Jenkins is softer, less locked up, perhaps because it's easier for a man, maybe because he is openly a seeker. He knows what kind of pilgrimage he is on. Okay, we'll stop there.
lovely walk in glorious sunshine. And it's good to meet that man and hear about a chocolate Labrador. Wow. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul Omani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.